Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 11. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verse 37. We'll begin this morning. Uh, We have, I don't know, close to 20 verses to do today. And you will be benefited by having a copy of the Scripture in your lap as we just work verse by verse. I know the verses will be on the screen in a moment. I do encourage you to find page 870 in the Pew Bible or in your uh, copy of God's Word, Luke 11, verse 37. While you're finding your way there, I I do um, want to echo my brother John's prayers and um, praise God uh, for this country in which we live in. Despite the troubles in which we face, uh, I I would imagine we would all agree that we are very pleased and and, uh, thankful to God that we are Americans and that we live in a country that has uh, been protected by men and women for over 200 years And many of them have given their lives to protect us. And so praise God for our veterans, especially those who have died in service of this country. I do want to thank my brother Josh for preaching last Sunday. We had a a wonderful time hiking in the mountains of North Carolina. We did a five-day trip, 30 miles, my four children and my father and I out in the wilderness. For a couple days, we didn't see another single individual. It was, uh, don't take this the wrong way, it was wonderful uh, out there crossing creeks and catching snakes and um, just doing all sorts of wonderful things. My kids climbed uh, the third highest peak east of the Mississippi, ascending 5,000 vertical feet, um, and uh, did wonderful and came back refreshed and certainly delighted. I'll tell you, God is amazing. Um, we, were, we were camping in a campsite that I hadn't seen anybody in a while, and there was this nest of three little birds there constantly calling for their mom, and it reminded me of a passage that we'll consider in the coming weeks, how, how even the sparrow in the forest that no one ever sees, God is mindful of. And if he's mindful of the sparrow... You who are worth so much more, how much more will he care for you? And God is, um, testifies to his power and his care, even in his creation. So praise God. Well, it's good to be back. It's good to be here in Luke chapter 11, in our study of Luke. We begin in verse 37. Please hear now the word of God. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. 
So you are witnesses and consent to their deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself. And you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus. We're thankful, Father, for his courage. We're thankful for... His ferocious love, His gracious, stern warnings. We're thankful, Father, that for even those who would oppose Him, He would warn them, calling for them to repent. Perhaps, Father, even those among us here are like these Pharisees. We think we're serving You, but in truth we are deceived. Will you by your spirit through the preached word come and open our eyes to areas of legalism and hypocrisy and moralistic religion that knows no love for Jesus? Father, help us to see ourselves as we truly are that we might become more like Christ for his glory. In our great gain, we pray it in his name. Amen. The great George Whitfield, when he began his preaching ministry, was bringing the residents of Edinburgh out of bed at 5 a.m. in the morning to go here and preach. They would walk for miles to the nearby field, to wherever he was, and By the time they were walking, they would accumulate thousands of them, tens of thousands at times would come hear the great preacher stand upon a stump and preach, by the way, for two hours. They would travel, waking at 5 a.m. in the morning. One man was on his way to hear Whitfield, and he came across David Hume, the great Scottish philosopher and skeptic. He was surprised at seeing him on his way to hear Whitfield, and he said to him, Dr. Hume, I thought you did not believe the gospel. Hume replied, I do not, but this man does. You see, there's something, there's something about an authentic Christian that is attractive even to those who would reject his beliefs. And, and on the other hand, there's there's something about an inauthentic Christian, a, a religious counterfeit that would keep the rules, but his heart would be far from loving God that is repulsive to our culture. This is not the accusation that we often hear about Christians, that it's filled with hypocrites. And I'm afraid quite often they are right. And it keeps people away. It repulses them. It makes the gospel less attractive to them. I would suggest to you that the biggest danger to the church today is not this ascending moral order around us. It is 
not secular hostility or academic opposition or radical Islam. All of course, which are serious and require our attention. But the greatest danger to the people of God today comes not from without, but from within. The greatest danger that we face comes from within our very church houses today. I tell you, based upon my reading of God's Word, nothing will destroy the church faster than religious, moral conservatives whose heart is far from God. After all, who is Christ fighting against as we work our way through Luke? Is it the tax collectors? Is it the prostitutes? Is it the Roman oppressors or the revolutionaries? No, it, it, it's the religious conservatives. He reserves his harshest language for those who are deeply religious. Brood of vipers, he'll call them. Blind guides, whitewashed tombs, murderers, sons of hell are the names that Christ has reserved for those who believe they are serving God. I would say to you this morning that a religion that tries to accomplish what Christ freely offers is deadly and destructive, and that religion remains in the church today. It is a Christianity based upon morality, religious rules, and it is not the gospel. The essence of the gospel is not that you are moral. The essence of Christianity is not that you are good. The essence of Christianity is that you are not good and Jesus loves you anyways. And the reason why I think so many people struggle worshiping, why so many people don't have joy in their salvation is because they do not have salvation. They have a list of rules and they call it Christianity and it is not true. It is a counterfeit. And we today are going to meet some very religious, some very conservative, some very dry and judgmental people having dinner with Jesus, as you see in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. So here's Jesus with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are these religious individuals in this day who like their rules. They, they like to make up rules. They're all about rules. One person said meeting with the Pharisees is like having a Bible study with the Internal Revenue Service, right? There's just rules everywhere. They like rules. They make up rules. They interpret rules. They enforce rules. And they find the loopholes in the rules. And then they come back and fix the rules. And, and one of their rules that they have come up with this ceremonial hand washing. You see in verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now this washing is not, not what you and I do. It's not what we tell our kids to do before dinner. Go wash your hands. It's not a matter of germs. It's a matter of ritual cleanliness. Ceremonial um, defilement or cleanliness. And to the Pharisees, evidently cleanliness really was next to godliness. And what they would do at this day before they would eat a meal, uh, according to one, is they would have water poured over their hands to remove the defilement contracted by their contact with a sinful world. A little ceremony they did. Before they sat down or reclined at the table, they would just pour water and to symbolize that they're trying to rid themselves of, of, of the sin of this world. Of course, the Bible never says to do this. Probably nothing inherently wrong with such a practice. If you wanted some type of a ceremony before you ate dinner, I don't think there would be anything wrong with it. And these people adopted it, right? And so they all sit down and pour water over their hands, but Jesus does not. 
Right? Jesus chooses not to wash his hands. He's digging in with dinner, right? With unclean hands. And everybody is, according to Luke's gospel, they're astonished at him. They're scandalized by him that he would not actually do this practice. And I was trying to think of a, well, you know, what would be a modern parallel? Be, you can imagine if you invited, you know, this, this, um, pastor over, this, this famous pastor over for dinner, and you got all your friends there at the dinner table, and you, you put out the spread of dinner right in front of him, and, you know, I don't know, you, you put out the corn pudding right before the pastor, and, and he, he reaches out with his hands, and, and he just takes a big old handful of corn pudding, right? And you would, you would all be like, you would all be staring at him, right? And you would be scandalized. What is he doing? And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. And then he, he looks at everyone, right? Makes eye contact and he just takes the corn pudding and he just starts to eat it there. And, it's, right? and everybody is, is astonished with him. How, how dare he, he, he put that food in his hand when his hand is, is not yet been purified, right? He's, he's defiled the corn pudding. And, and they're they're astonished. I remember when I was uh, on a, a little Pacific island in in the South Pacific, Tana, on mission, and and wherever we eat, we would be backpacking through the jungle, and we would always eat root crop. That's what they live on, all, all different forms of potatoes, purple potatoes and orange potatoes, right? And and they would give you the potatoes, and I didn't know it better. Uh, I've never been in Tana before. I just reach down and eat the potato. And I, I, everybody stared at me until someone said, no, you don't, you don't eat the potato by your hand. You have to go find a little stick and spear the potato. Uh, never mind that these people are constantly spitting and there's pigs and dogs and, and chickens running around, but evidently the stick from the ground is cleaner than my hands in that culture. So, you know, of course, what do you do? You go get the stick and, and well, see, there, there's, their rule is that you're supposed to wash your hands before you, you eat, and Jesus is breaking their rule. Now, is he, being, is he being rude? Maybe. Is he being mean? I don't think so. He's certainly not being gentle. There's no gentleness in this passage. But uh, I would suggest to you he's being loving. Right? He, he loves them, and therefore he provokes them. And, and now everyone in the room has been provoked, and he has them all where he wants them to be and all the eyes are on this young rabbi with defiled hands and he says to them in verse 39 now you pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish but inside you are full of greed and wickedness you you want to talk about defilement you want to talk about cleanliness well your hands may be clean but your heart is a cesspool it's filth and all these individuals, all you care about is these conformity to rules. All you care about is your religious rules. And, and hand washing, you know, you think is good, but it does nothing with the heart. You're just washing the outside of the cup and, and, and not the inside. And it is a worthless act, right? Who wants to drink from a cup that's full of crud on the inside, even if it's pristine on the outside? If anything, the inside's more important, right, than the outside of the cup. And what Jesus is teaching is that God is not only after your behavior. It's after your heart. He wants your heart. The, in fact, the, I would say if anything's more important, it would be the inside. And the outside should just simply be an overflow of what's going on in the inside. And according to Jesus, the inside of these individuals is full of greed and wickedness. Your, your freshly washed hands contradict the state of your unwashed heart. And Jesus... Jesus goes on. He concludes that they're foolish. Notice his words in verse 40. You fools. 
Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Who you are matters more than what you do. His conclusion, verse 41, But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Alms was an act of mercy and love that they would give, an act from the heart. And he wants... You know, these guys are spending all their time appearing holy. And the inside, they're dirty and dry and dead. And Jesus says, no, you give from the inside. If you're honest with who you are, I would help you. I would make you clean. I would clean the inside of you and the outside of you. You would be entirely clean if you would just come understand what's going on inside your heart. And Jesus is driving down deep. Now, a couple things I want you to note before we start working through these six woes that Jesus pronounces. First thing I want you to be aware of is that Jesus is not losing His temper. Are these strong words? No, there's no doubt. I have never, I don't think, ever had words like this for anyone. Nor have I ever heard anyone give words like this. These are strong words. But they're not angry words spoken in the heat of a moment. The, These are thoughtful words. These are measured words of a sinless Savior after years of patient teaching and pleading with these individuals. But they are are hard words. They're, They're words of wrath. This is gospel wrath. Some people think wrath's in the Old Testament and the, God, and the New Testament's all, New Covenant's all about love and mercy. Certainly it is. But I would tell you, not only do we see love and mercy more clearly in the New Covenant, we see wrath more clearly in the New Covenant. I would say the wrath of God actually intensifies. The book of Hebrews says how much greater our condemnation will be if we reject the Son of God. Now that He's come, the stakes are higher. The revelation is greater. The responsibilities have grown. Right? So Jesus is warning them. I secondly want you to see that he's not losing his temper. I also want you to see the strength of Jesus. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine, as you know, if you've been around for a while, is the modern caricature of Jesus as this effeminate, uh, you know, hippie in a bathrobe with light shining down on him from heaven. And this, you don't see little love fairy Jesus, you know, singing in the meadow here. Right? He's loving. It's loving to warn people. That's what he's doing. In fact, he will give a very similar denunciation in the book of Matthew. I think it's Matthew 23. He'll pronounce a series of woes upon the religious conservatives of his day. But Matthew tells us he does it through tears. Why? Because he wants them to repent. He longs to bless the very people who are rejecting him. There's love here. It's strong love. It's a ferocious love. I just want you to keep that in mind. I want you to see the strength of Jesus. The third thing I want you to note before we start working through these woes is that the Pharisees were highly regarded religious leaders. They were devout. They were sincere. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. I would suggest that many of them knew the Bible better than you and I. They believed with all their hearts that they were serving God. And so did everyone else believe they were serving God. Right? And so there's a caution here, isn't there, that it is possible. Listen, Hamilton Baptist Church, it is possible for you and I to believe we are doing God's work, serving God, obeying God's word, and be deceived. That's exactly what's happening here. And we would be fools as well if we thought, okay, this can't be about us. 
This can't apply to us. I would suggest to you, your religious activity can be a very subtle and deceptive cover-up for spiritual deadness. We, we who go to church every Sunday and read the Bible and all the rest can at the same time have no real love and devotion for Jesus. In fact, it was just probably in the past three or four months that I have sat down and had coffee or lunch with, with two men um, from this church and both have testified to me that they, have, they went to church all their life, did all, all the Christian things and youth group and tied their money and, and had their quiet times. And it was not until their late 20s, early 30s perhaps that they realized that they were not saved. That they had no love for Christ. In fact, one man, he, I'm going to have him share his testimony one day because it is powerful. He's driving home with his wife and he looks to her and says, Honey, I, I don't think I'm a Christian. Even though he's been in church whole life. Please understand, it's exactly what Jesus is talking about. You know, we, we read about his encounters with prostitutes and tax collectors. Not many of us are doing those kind of sins. These are the sins in which you and I are much more inclined to commit. We are the religious conservatives. And so please open your heart to what God might want to expose in your life. Blind spots. And perhaps even for some, He might expose spiritual deadness that you might find Christ today. Well, consider the six woes that Jesus offers to these religious conservatives. Woe number one, woe to those who love the law, but not others. Verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I'm going to spend, uh, I think, probably uh, a good portion of my time here on this first one, just so you know. And I'm also going to talk to you about money. So just be prepared. I'm going to talk about your money. And by the way, I'm not going to talk about your money because we are in need. Praise God, by His grace and your generosity. You look in the bulletin, we once again are exceeding our budget. So we don't, we don't, we're not in need here at Hamilton. In fact, uh, we have exceeded our budget every year for the last three years and are on track to do it for the fourth year. And I'll remind you, as I like to do every so often, that we don't save our money. If we exceed our, our budget as we have, we set all that, uh, that, that extra aside for missions. We just, we don't put it in the bank. We're not interested in earning, um, burying it in the ground. We want to send it to the nations for the cause of Christ. I also want to let you know if you're a guest here, I'm not asking for a penny. The plates are not coming out a second time, right? Okay? So relax. Okay? So let's talk. Jesus begins by talking about their tithe. Now, every Pharisee tithe. It would be unheard of of a Pharisee who didn't tithe. In fact, they were so serious about tithing, evidently, that they tithe out of their spice rack. You see that? They're tithing from mint and, and I don't even know what rue is, but I hope it's a spice. And, and every herb. Tithe is 10%. That's what it means. The tithe equals 10%. And throughout the Old Testament, God has told His people that whatever you take from the land, right, you take one-tenth of that and you bring that back to the priests. And that way the priests will support themselves on the tithe, they will support the sacrificial system, and they will care for the poor. Now, th- this seems to me to be incredibly reasonable. I, I, I no, don't know of anyone who would farm a land that someone else owns and get income from that land and give none of it to the person that actually owns the land. I think we would call that stealing. 
Right? And, and God, God says to his people, listen, I'm bringing you into land. I'm going to tell you where to live. And I want you to understand the land is mine. I own it. You get to use it. You get to live on it. And all I ask is for 10%. That seems to me a, a wonderful, wonderful deal. I mean, no one in the Bible seemed to ever complain about that. No one, no one ever questioned it. It seemed to be amazingly generous. I think if the Bible were written today, it might say something like, if you take your income from farming your mind or your abilities or your talents, God would say, I gave you those. Where do you think those came from? Those are mine. I gave you those to you, and I don't ask for much. I'm asking for 10%. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, Pastor. That's the Old Testament, as some people do. And... And sometimes it's hard to know what from the Old Testament applies today, and sometimes it's not, right? Uh, love your neighbors as yourself. That's Leviticus. Does that still apply? Right? Yes. Yeah, that's, right? well, can you wear uh, garments made from two fabrics? That's also the Old Testament. I would say we can, even though the Old Testament forbids that, right? Sometimes it's easy to know what applies and what doesn't. But what about the tithe, right? Sometimes it's uncertain. And there's some debate as to whether the tithe is still appropriate. I just want to point out verse 42 to you. He says, For you tithe, and you neglect justice and love of God, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Right? That seems pretty clear to me. Now, Jesus says, listen, you're tithing. Good. Continue to do that. But don't forget justice. Don't forget the love of God. Now, if Jesus was ever inclined to set aside the tithe, this would be the place to do it. Because the Pharisees, the ones who are tithing, are turning the law into this burdensome regulation. And you, you almost expect Jesus to say, here, let me lift one of these burdens off you. You guys are demanding the tithe. You're a bunch of legalists. That's oppressive. Don't do it. But he doesn't do that at all. He says, you tithe. Don't leave that undone. But just make sure you are practicing justice and love. Right? In fact, you see what he's doing? He's, he's asking for more than the tithe. Right? If, you're, if, you, if you're already struggling, say, well, tithe? You've got to be kidding me. Right? Wait till you hear what else he has to say. Because he's saying, not only do I want you to tithe, I want you to, to act out of justice and kindness and love and compassion. I want more than tithing. I want you to help the poor. I want you to stand up for the oppressed out of a love for God. Right? These Pharisees, all they are is concerned with these external rules. The outside is clean, but there's no real love for God or for people. Right? They're calculating the tithe down to the leaves on their mint shrub. But when there's someone in need, well, they'll look the other way. Right? They'll keep the law in these small matters so they feel good about themselves and they'll neglect the weightier matters. Right? So Jesus says, if you tithe, listen, listen, tithers. If you tithe but aren't willing to open your home, if you tithe but have no compassion, if you tithe but not willing to be inconvenienced for those who are in need, Christ says, woe to you. Right? Woe to you who tithe and neglect those who are in need. In fact, you notice verse 41, he says, give alms, right? Alms are, are helping people, helping the poor. It's kindness, compassion, justice. And they, they did that through their times. But look what he says, give alms, uh, give as alms those things that are within. Give from your heart, right? Give your money and give your heart is what he's asking. And so often it's very easy for us to say, where do I send the check, right? I'll just send my check, where does it go? But I'm certainly not going to get involved over there. I'm certainly not going to, to inconvenience myself. And Christ comes, no, I, I want you to give the inside 
and I want you to give from the outside. And so if you're tithing, Jesus is teaching us this. We shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back. The question is, are there weak that need protecting? Is there a stranger that needs welcoming? Or are there poor that need helping? And certainly there are in our county, though they uh, often, I think, are concealed. But lift your eyes and see a world in great and desperate need. Some of you will see this firsthand when you go to Eagle Butte in July. See children roaming the streets without families. Some of you will see this firsthand when you go to the slums in Accra, Ghana in August. And you will find children neglected by their parents rummaging through garbage that you wouldn't even want to touch. So they might find something to eat. Or find something valuable that they might be able to sell. The needs in this world are massive. Christ says, I don't want you just to give from the outside. I want from your heart. You know, one one thing you could pray for the elders, by the way, which I think perhaps are, uh, if there's a, a position parallel to the Pharisees, it might be the elders of the church. Pray that we are not quick to quote our Bibles and slow to get involved in people's lives. Pray that we would not neglect justice. And some of you perhaps um, aren't, you find yourself, and financially, you're just, you just, you, you think if I started the tithe now, it, I mean, there's no way I could do it. Um, there's, there's absolutely no way. And, and I, I would encourage you to begin to, to start at least to give. And not just open your wallet on Sunday, see what's there, but, but plan giving. Find a place where you can cut back. It may not be a tithe, but start, become a giver, not just a receiver. Become someone who begins to contribute and give your time and give your efforts and pray that God will give you resources and self-control that you might be a good steward of his finances. Now, there are, there are other people, we're going to move on in a moment, but there are other people that think about, perhaps you're here and you think, well, this tithe, uh, <laughs> that, is, that is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. That's a burden, right? Move on, pastor. Let's get to something else, right? Notice what Jesus says in verse 42. He says that they're neglecting justice and, you see this? Love of God. And I think what Jesus says, I want you to give the tithe and I want you to do justice and kindness, but I want you to do it out of a love of God from your heart. In in other words, uh, he's just not after the obedience. He wants their heart. He wants the inside and the outside. And I'm reminded of of a passage in in Corinthians when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and he says to the Corinthians, Christ who was rich, became poor on our behalf, that you might become rich. Now he's speaking in spiritual sense. He's talking about salvation. Look what Christ has given up so that you might gain, right? And so he says, in light of what Christ has done, he says, now, then the next very next thing he says, now give me your money so I can help the starving poor in Jerusalem. And then he says, but I'm not going to command you to do it, right? right? Which is, I think, fascinating. Why not command it? Because I, think, I think why he won't command it is because if you give only because it's a command, you're not giving out of a love for God. You're not a, as he goes on to say, a cheerful giver. The outside may be clean, but the inside is dirty. And Paul says, I'm not going to command you to do it. Though there's great need, right? You don't, you don't command someone to bay from their heart in some sense. You don't command a lover to, to kiss, kiss her husband, right? Or, or kiss, kiss uh, his wife. I, I did a wedding last Sunday. And I did not at the end of the wedding say, I now command you to kiss your bride. Right? I said, you may now kiss your bride. 
You get to. Right? And that's what God wants, even with our tithe. I get to do it. I get to support ministry and the spread of the gospel through the nations. And, and we're liberated from our, this love of money that holds us into bondage. And it all depends on understanding what Christ has done. If you say, uh, listen, um, serving the needy, inconveniencing myself for the poor, giving the tithe is a burden, and I know Jesus died for me. Paul says, no, you don't. You don't. Because once you understand the unimaginable generosity of Christ for you, it will transform you. And you will become generous. You will become Christ-like. And you know it's happened to you if you give with joy. And you know it happens to you when the pastor talks about mission opportunities and you don't roll your eyes and say, Oh, geez, again? No, you get excited. I get to do what? I get to support what? Money begins to take on a ministry mindset. What can I do with this? And you not only with your money, but you start to serve and get involved because of what Christ has done for you. Second woe. Woe to those who seek the applause of men, not the pleasure of God. Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues, and the greetings in the marketplace, right? They, they love to promote themselves. They love to jockey for position in the synagogues. The, the more important you were, the closer you sat up front. And if you're real important, you sat facing the congregation, right? And we even have that practice in some churches today. The important people, right? They sit facing them, right? And, and this is what they're doing. And they're doing it because they love the recognition, Right? They, they love that, that acclaim. In fact, when I was on Tana and I was preaching at some of the churches there on that island, they would wait for the entire congregation to gather. This really troubled me. And once everybody was gathered, someone would walk in and he would say, Preach up! And everybody would stand up as you entered. Right? As if you were some kind of king or something or some type of judge. And, and these Pharisees, they, they loved it. Right? They love the, the greeting in the marketplace, Dr. So-and-so and Reverend this or that. You see, they're seeking the praise of men. Religious people, they don't care if God is pleased. They want to be praised. It doesn't matter if they're holy. They just want to be others to think they're holy. They want others to think, wow, look at how much he knows of the Bible. Look how much he serves. Look at how much he does. Friends, brothers and sisters, There's a deadly desire in our heart to be applauded. We should be careful. We should be careful of talking about our accomplishments. We should be careful about exaggerating our accomplishments in order that people would think highly of us. To appear spiritual, even when you are not spiritual, is soul-killing. It is dangerous. It is poisonous. In fact, I would suggest to you, it is a way to hell. Jesus Christ in John 5 and verse 44 says, You cannot believe in me if you accept the praise of others. Beware of seeking the applause of men and not the pleasure of God. Woe number three. Woe to those who lead people away from God. Verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. So they're not just unclean on the inside, like a dirty cup. They're dead. Jesus says, you're... You're a coffin with a decomposing remains. 
physically alive, active, very religious, spiritually dead. You don't love God. You don't love me. All you do is love the rules, right? And they're not just graves, they're unmarked graves. In the book of Numbers, it tells us that if you walk over a grave, you become defiled ceremonially for seven days. And so what they would do, they would clearly mark the grave. So people, especially in pilgrimage on the Passover to, to, to Jerusalem, wouldn't walk over one of these uh, graves and therefore be um, uh, defiled so they could not celebrate the Passover. So they would mark the graves. And Jesus says, you guys, you guys are like unmarked graves. People walk over you unknowingly and you're defiling them. In other words, you're leading people astray without them even knowing it. You're teaching them that it's just, I just want to appear this way, whether it's true or not. You're defiling other people. All you do is making a bunch of religious folk filled with pride and hypocrisy and no love for God and others. Woe to those who lead people away from God. Well, um, Jesus is, is kind of letting them have it. And finally someone speaks up. Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Right? Have you ever heard the expression of leading with your chin? Right? Um, th- this, this man probably should have remained quiet, in other words. It's almost like he's saying, excuse me, Jesus, I, I hate to tell you this, um, but you're hurting our feelings. You know? and, and Lenny over there in the corner, he's crying, and, and all the rest of us are, are upset, and we all you know, kind of get heated and we say things we don't mean it would be really nice if you would you would say you're sorry you know and and you didn't mean all this and we maybe start over and it's almost as if jesus said oh was was i being unclear um did, did you not think i was talking about you lawyers as well thank you for letting me know and so what does jesus think about lawyers this is one of my heart verses verse 46 woe to you lawyers also three times now, the difference between a Pharisee and a lawyer, a Pharisee would be um, a layman, right? So he would not make his living out of uh, serving God. And they would have these hypocritical religious practices. The lawyers were the religious scribes. The equivalent might be the seminary professors, right? And so they would make, uh, they, they're, they're going to be accused of perverting God's word, as you see in the fourth woe, woe to those who burden others with excessive rules. Verse 46. And uh, he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also for why? You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So the lawyer's job is to take the Scripture and apply it to people's lives. And instead of doing that, they make up all these crazy rules. And you certainly have heard of them. And, and, and many of them have to do with the, with the Sabbath day, as you know, that God says on the Sabbath. All God says is, Hey, every seventh day, I want you to stop working and take a rest. That's all he says. He never gets into the details of what that's like. He says, have a nap, go for a walk, take a rest, enjoy your, your holy day or your holiday one day out of seven. And, and of course, these scribes come and, and they, they begin to regulate that. In fact, one um, ancient Jewish uh, writing says, on the Sabbath, a man may not carry an object in his right hand or his left hand in his bosom or on his shoulder. He may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his sandal. And all of a sudden God says, hey, have a day off. And these scribes come, and they make it massively burdened. Like, okay, what, can I carry it in my sandal, but not my shoe? All right, and they have to, all of a sudden there's this burden that they have to be weighed down. And they take God's light yoke and make it heavy, impossible to carry. And it crushes people. 
And Jesus says, this is what you're doing. You're not following God. You're just trying to keep rules. You're just trying to be moral. Trying to be religious. Please understand there's a massive difference between this moralistic, religious Christianity and gospel-based Christianity. Right? This moralistic religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's what all religions teach. Obey leads to acceptance. I'm going to follow the moral code. I'm going to do these things and God will accept me. If I don't do them, God's not pleased with me. God won't accept me. In the gospel, at the very center is a blood-stained cross where Jesus receives the wrath of God precisely because we do not do the things we are supposed to do. Right? Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore what? I obey. I want to obey because I've already been accepted. I've been accepted by the sacrifice of Jesus, not by my actions. And that, by the way, creates obedience in our hearts, creates love, it creates worship. In religion, we say, I obey because I'm afraid. Right? And, and this gets into the church, right? Don't you, don't you want to go to heaven? What do you want? Hell or heaven? Right? Well, I, I'll, I'll choose heaven. Right? Well, let me tell you, heaven is not a place of people afraid of hell. It's a place of people who love Jesus. And, and gospel comes and says, Jesus says, do you love me? That's what I want. I want you to love. Right? You see, religion motivates us by fear. Do this or God will get you. The gospel motivates us by this grateful joy. I have been accepted. That creates obedience and, and love and worship. Religion says, I obey to think highly of myself. Right? You get this religious system and all your self-worth is based upon how well you keep the system, how good you are. And if you do well, you're filled with pride. If you, if you do poorly, you're filled with despair. The gospel says you've been saved by the mercy of God. Therefore, you do not boast and you do not look at people with this critical judgmental heart. And at the same time, you don't have despair or self-hatred. Right? The gospel says, listen, you are bad enough that the Son of God had to die for you. And that humbles you, doesn't it? And then it comes right after that and says, you are loved so much, he was glad to do it. And you're lifted up. And I'll tell you, that creates obedience and love and worship. Religion says, I obey so God will bless me. Right? When things go bad to the religious man, and they will go bad, they either get angry with God because he's broken the the contract, or they get angry with themselves because they didn't do the stuff they were supposed to do. The gospel, when things go bad, and they will, and we still struggle, there's no doubt, but even in the midst of it, we rejoice knowing it is not the anger of God. It's not. Christian, God will never be angry with you. Forever. All His anger has been exhausted on Jesus. It's all poured out on Jesus. And so when things go bad, God comes along and says, I'm going to walk with you through this. Let's do this together. It's not wrath. It's not your failure. A loving Father is coming and He wants you to grow through it. And that creates, I'll tell you, it creates obedience and love and humility. The essence, please understand, of Christianity is not we have a law to keep. It is not about being a good kid. It is not about being generous and not lying and honor mommy and daddy. It is not about keeping a series of rules. The Christianity is a good news to believe and a savior to love. And when Jesus says, when you come to me, you don't get a rule book. You get a relationship. I want you to come follow me, not follow rules. He did not come primarily as a lawgiver. He came as a law fulfiller. He says, I will fulfill the law for you. Now, are there rules to obey? 
Absolutely. But we do so because we love Him. We do so out of gratitude and joy with our Father. We've been accepted by mercy into His family and we want to act like children in the family and, and, and uh, obey our God because of the great gratitude in our heart. And so it's not about following rules. It's not about being a good kid. It's about loving Jesus. And Jesus says, woe to those who have all these excessive rules that burden people down. Fifth, woe to those who oppose God's messengers. Look in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your father killed. Today, if you go to Jerusalem, you will see these ornate tombs dedicated to Old Testament prophets. And this is how they honored the prophets, at least in their mind. They were evidently doing it in Jesus' day. And, and they're building these tombs. And Jesus is rebuking them for building tombs for the prophets they admired, which is interesting. Do you know why? In verse 48... So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. You see what he's doing? He's charging them with collusion. He's saying, you're just completing the work that they started. They, they killed them. You build their tombs. Your, your heart is the same as their heart, right? And, and you're just finishing their acts. And, of course, you might ask, well, well, how does he know that's what's going on? Well, he has a bit of prophecy in verse 49. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Right? Because he plans on sending more. He plans on sending prophets. He plans on sending apostles. And what will they do? According to Jesus, what these guys will do, he's having dinner with them. He says, you're going to persecute them. You're going to kill them. It's already happened with John the Baptist, whom they, they uh, opposed. And it's going to continue with the apostles, who they'll beat and flog and kill. And it's exactly what their children continue to do today. It's the, Followers of Christ are persecuted all around this world. Jesus continues in verse 50 saying, So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. From Abel, the first who was killed, to Zechariah, the last, according to the Hebrew Scripture, who was killed, stoned to death in the sanctuary courtyards. Jesus says their blood demands justice. Abel to Zechariah, A to Z, and all in between. And according to verse 50, he says it will be charged against this generation. In verse 51, he says it will be required of this generation. Of course, this reminds us, I think, of the most heinous crime that these individuals will do. And that will not be simply murdering an apostle or a prophet, but the Son of God Himself, these same men under the cover of darkness, as you know, will arrest Jesus, charge Him with false accusations, and incite a riotous crowd to demand His death. And when they did it, the Bible says they took full responsibility upon themselves. Scripture says they declared, let His blood be upon us and our children. I tell you, God will not forget the killing of His prophets. He won't he won't forget the killing, the persecution of his children. He certainly won't forget the killing of his son. Justice will be served. Vengeance will be had. Either upon Christ as a substitute or upon those who refuse the mercy of a holy God. He will charge it against them. Now you and I, we don't oppose messengers of God by persecution, do we? But we can't oppose their message, right? We can't decide, well, 
I'm not going to believe that, even though Scripture teaches it. Christian, beware of, of rejecting teaching simply because you do not like it. How many people say, oh, I don't believe that? Because it doesn't, doesn't fit with their desires. Was well, that not what they were doing? We don't like what you're saying. We therefore oppose you. Woe to those who oppose God's messengers. Last, consider woe number six. Woe to those who block the way to Jesus. Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you have hindered those who were entering. Their job uh, as these religious scribes was to, to allow people to come to God. To open the door to God. And they've lost the key. In fact, they're not only coming to God, but they're actually keeping other people from entering into a relationship to God. They're doing the opposite of what they think they're doing. One pastor says they're like painted fire exits in a crowded building in flames. People taking them at their words, trying to escape, but in fact, they're just a brick wall painted like a door. Of course, the key is Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life that no man comes to the Father except by me. Christ says the lawyers of all people should have known this. Jesus says scripture testifies to me of all the people who should have recognized him, who should have been eager for him. It should have been these very men whom he was speaking to. And instead of knowing him, instead of receiving him, they actually became an obstacle to truth. They stood in the way. I can, and by the way, you know, I look at this and I can think, I can think of no, no more damning accusation that God could ever come against me with than, teacher, preacher, you're standing in the way. You're keeping people from me. How terrible must that have heard? I, Jesus said, I've come to save sinners and some are looking for me, but they can't see me because you keep blocking their way. Woe to those who block the way to Jesus. Well, that just about ends the dinner party, don't you think? Right? <laughs> I'm not sure dessert is coming out. Um, I just can't imagine the tension by the time he's done, offended everyone in that room, exposed them. How would they respond? Verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. We need to kill this man. The cross is coming. And they begin to plot how they might end his life. Think about what, what should they have done? What should you do if you're caught in this external religious behavior, but then the heart is just dry and perhaps even dead? I find it interesting that there's only six woes here. In the Bible, there's, things rarely come in sixes, almost, almost always in sevens. And yet Jesus ends after 6. It, it reminded me of, of a passage I'm familiar with in Isaiah 5. Very similar passage in which God pronounces six woes upon the people of Israel. Very religious people. Once again, there's not seven woes. There's just six. Until you read the next chapter. Until you get to Isaiah 6. 
you find a seventh woe. But this one's not pronounced by God. It's pronounced by the prophet himself. And Isaiah walks into the temple and there he sees a vision of God and he says what? You know, he says, woe to me. Woe to me for I have seen the king. He, he repents. He's not offended at God's word. He didn't try to trap God that he might kill him. He repented. Right? And, and rather, rather than pronouncing woes upon themselves, woe to our self-effort and our self-righteousness, they plotted to kill Jesus. And on that bloody cross, the greatest, if you will, of all God's prophets, the very Son of God, took the woe of our sin upon Himself. So that by mercy, you and I might be saved from all of our self-righteousness. You see, religion, religion says there, there's a gap between God and sinners. Every religion says there's a gap between God and people. We need to do something. And so what they do, every religion does this. We make rules. Here's the rules. And the rules change, but there's always rules. And they teach people to obey those rules. And, and if you obey the rules, then God says to those who obey the rules, you're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys, right? And then once you've got the rules, you come before God and say, God, you owe me because I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm a moral man. I'm a good person. You should love me. You should accept me. You should save me because I've done a good, lived a good life. I did the rules. There was a man in the Bible just like that, believed that uh, absolutely, if I do the rules, God will accept me. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And one day he met Jesus. And he says in Philippians 3 and 8, I count all my rule keeping and all my religious accomplishments as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all my morality and all my goodness and all my religious accomplishments and count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. It's all garbage. It's all rubbish. I don't count any of it as an accomplishment because I found Jesus. He met Jesus and all his works, all his morality, all his rule keeping, rule making, rule enforcing is worthless to him. See, religion's true. (laughs) Something has to be done. Somebody needs to do something. Religion comes and says, here's the list, do it. The gospel says, here comes God. He'll do it for us. And while Jesus hangs upon the cross, you know what he says? It is finished. It's done. I, I did it. I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All the work is done, and I give it to you if you will love me. If you'll bow your knee to me. Don't try to earn what Christ would freely give you today. It will take you to hell. Accept the mercy that He would offer you. Away with just religious obedience and public personas and rule-keeping and self-righteousness and boasting and judging and, and come to Christ. And for those of us who know Christ, oh, my brothers and sisters, are there not areas of pride in life? Is there not areas of hypocrisy in your life? Are there not blind spots in your life that God would say, I want your heart here. I want your heart there. 
that you might, might bow your knee to him afresh today. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the very strong love of Jesus. The ferocious love of our Savior. There are certainly areas of heartless hand-washing in my life. Certainly areas where I love the praise of men in my life. I trust there might be in my brothers' and sisters' lives as well. The type of religion will, will dry us up. It's toxic. Help us to repent. Help Christ to be enough for us. And we pray for our friend here today that perhaps even unknown to him or her has been going through heartless motions maybe for decades. Christ, will you come and meet with them today as you did our brother Paul? That they may turn from all their religious accomplishments and find mercy in the nail-pierced hands of a loving Savior. For we pray it for his glory and in his name. Amen.